remember that America, many times you, you hear constantly that in Europe, sometimes it shocks us when they said, we are the, our president leads the world, the free world. And we said, well, wait a minute, lead the American people, but uh, it's too much. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's leading Welcome the world. to Committing High Reason, a podcast where we dissect important topics such as good versus evil, religion versus atheism, Judaism versus Zionism, and our pet peeve, political propaganda. Committing High Reason will give you tools to strengthen your intellectual independence, enhance your critical thinking, and hopefully acquire some very new perspectives. Now, here's your host, Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. The events that took place in this country's capital on January 6th are a perfect example of what we call a civic religion, which means a religion without any elements of God. In particular, it's the civic religion of nationalism, the dedication a person has to his country, which can sometimes cross the line of rational and practical and useful into the realm of the irrational. In 1914, the patriotic Englishman J.A. Cram, professor at the University of London, wrote, these are, these are excerpts, he's talking about going to war for nationalist purposes. In war and the right of war, man has a possession which he values above religion, above industry, and above social comforts. In war, man values the power which it affords of rising above life, the power which transcends reason. End quote. Now, reading this, one would think that he's criticizing the motivations people have to go to war and the illicit satisfaction that they get from it, but he's not. He's actually praising it, and he's describing the benefits of nationalism, which is a strange thing. The assault on our country's capital and the ideas that prompted it were literally beyond reason. And yet there were those that said that they were literally willing to give their life for the cause of overturning this election. Civic religion is religion without God. It's a law without a lawgiver and sacrifice without returns. It's ritual without reason. This particular type of nationalism that transcends reason actually cropped up in the late 1800s, according to many historians, as a response to the minimization of the authority of traditional religions that happened at the time. It was a response to industrialism and materialism of that age and also to the social, Darwin, pseudoscientific, racial-type propaganda. The difference between civic religion and traditional religion is vast. If you were to ask somebody, a member of any religion, who gives his life for it, why he's giving his life for this cause, he'll tell you, well, if he does this, he's going to heaven. But if you were to ask Nathan Hale, the American spy who was caught and put to death by the British, who legend says that his last words before he was killed was, quote, I regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Why are you giving your life for your country? What is the benefit? What is the return? What is the reason? I wonder what he would say. By the way, there's no historical evidence that Nathan Hale actually said that. That's a legend. In fact, that line, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country, is a, it was actually a line from a play 
that took place then. It's like a guy, they, they attributed a line from a movie to him, but he probably never said that. In fact, there were, there's witnesses that his last line was that it's proper for, for a soldier to do whatever his superior officer commands him. I understand Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death, which, by the way, was also a line from the exact same play, although Patrick Henry actually said this. I understand when a person says, give me liberty or give me death, because whether he's right or wrong, he says, well, I don't want to live if I'm not free. That's a decision. It's the right decision or wrong decision. That's a decision, a rational decision. And, and I can understand that somebody gives his life for a cause. He wants the country to be better for his children, his family, the future generations. I understand that. That's selfless. You're giving something for other human beings. But the idea that you die for your country per se is one of the examples of patriotism crossing the line into what we call civic religion. Had he said, I'm willing to give my life for a higher cause, to save freedom and liberty, for self-determination of my fellow citizens, that I would understand. Had he said, it's worth it, I understand. But this is a different sentiment. I regret that I only have one life to give for my country. It's a sentiment that could only be described as human sacrifice. He would like to have more lives to give for his country. It's not for his fellow citizens, it's for his country. He's expressing a desire to give his life for this cause. Not because he believes he's going to go to heaven, or Valhalla, or whatever he believes. This is just human sacrifice. And for what? What are the returns? Who are you sacrificing to? You don't believe benevolent God that will repay you for your sacrifice? No, it's a, a corporation, a political construct. This is irrational. It's not misinformed, it's not naive, it's just irrational. Well, that's just my view. Our guest, who's an expert at this, may disagree. Our guest today is Professor Gloria Moran. Professor Moran is an expert in canon law. She was a distinguished full professor of comparative legal studies and the chair of law, religion, and public policy at the University of La Coronia from 1992 to 2016. She was the first woman ever to be accepted by the pontifical Gregorian University in Rome to study canon law in 1980. She got a PhD in jurisprudence in 1982 and was postdoctoral research Fulbright Scholar in the University of California, Catholic University of America, and Georgetown University from 1983 to 1986. Professor Moran participated in several state-sponsored programs as an advisor for Russia and the former Eastern European states when they transitioned from the official state creed of atheism to religious freedom. She's the author of several academic books and over a hundred articles in her field. She's a speaker in many international conferences, member of several advisory academic institutions and publications, including the Journal of Church and State, published by Oxford University. Her books include Legal Protection of Religious Freedoms in the U.S., Political Communities and Religious Communities in the European Juridical Culture, 
and the labyrinths of political identity, religion, nationalism, and law. They're all written in Spanish, by the way. Welcome, Professor Moran. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Could you tell our listener, you're an expert on this topic, especially from the legal vantage point. What exactly is a civic religion? How did it come to be? What were its origins? And how did it evolve to, to where it is today? Okay, uh, well, uh, we have two parts in, in this uh, question to be answered. The first part is regarding to the term itself, civic or civil religion. That is a quite a new term, but of course the content is what is historically, you know, the same thing. But uh, um, as a matter of fact, the term religion, uh, civic religion, it was incorporated into the American, you know, system somehow uh, for different reasons, but they were not very much aware initially. They just have to find how could, you know, work in the American new uh, republic and constitutional republic to glue the people when we don't have religion, because mostly religion was the glue, I mean, was the, the element who joined together at political level, historically speaking, from the, the European legacy. So um, here you have in the, se- in the 70s, in, in 1967 and in uh, 1974, two scholars who were the, the first, the earliest, as much as I know, who came out with the term civic religion in America. One was um, a sociopolitical scholar. His name was Robert Bella. And he wrote an article who was very powerful in the late uh, 60s, 1967, which mm. the title was Civic Religion in America. Just that. So he tried to define it. He tried to explain it. At the same time, a few years later, in 1979, as I mentioned, Stanford Levinson, which is a legal scholar, a theorist of legal um, and legal studies, just tried to focus this idea with the constitution in American civic religion. What is the role of constitution in such a civic religion? Later on, if you want, we can go back in history to understand what the connection with this idea that links nationality, emotions, symbolism, propaganda, indoctrination, you have all of it from where? Probably, in my view, it's from the Roman Empire, but mm-hmm. we, will, we will move later to that. Okay. Let's say, let's just let see what we have in the American system. The American system, we have a clear Protestant roots, and we have, um, you know, the notion from these Protestant, um, Protestant roots, the notion of the new chosen people, the pilgrims. They came here, the new chosen people, they have the Bible, they have the Protestant view of, of how a Christian should be. So I think that also is clear, the Protestant legacy of the founding fathers. Could you... They could, you based, they could be Masons, but the, that Protestant background was in them. Culturally, they were Protestant. Could you, expl- could you, could you just explain, uh, our listener may not know about the Protestant idea of the new chosen people. Oh, well, that takes us to theology. It's going to take us too far. Okay. I guess I'm going to go too much into that avenue because okay. I'm a legal scholar. If I go into that, we, we miss the point that I'm okay. trying to make, which okay. is most likely, let's just take it as it is. You know, most likely you have to go to the Luther and the theologians in the Reformation era and presented what was for them, the new chosen people, why they broke with the Catholic Church and that takes us to another path. Okay. So I don't want to go into that. No problem. We are not going to answer the, the question. Let's, okay. Let's focus just in that. So, as I was telling you, the Protestant legacy is clear in the Founding Fathers. To me, they are, um, you know, one, one um, 
one author that for me is, is, is essential in this process, which is Roger Williams, as a president of the Founding Fathers. Who is Roger Williams? Was the um, was a British um, colonist in Massachusetts who defended for first time clearly, very clearly, religious freedom. And that was something that this Protestant legacy that was in the Founding Fathers was adding to it. So Protestant legacy, yes, but religious freedom, too. So what that means is that, as, as Alex de Tocqueville said very clearly, he said, Christianity is the source of the principles of liberal democracy. Look at that. That was Alex de Tocqueville. Is he talking so, about, like, Judeo-Christian values, as they call it? Judeo-Christian values, but from the Protestant interpretation, from the mm-hmm. Protestant theological point of view. Now I can use the theological, uh, you know, term for okay. it. So from that time, then you start to see how the founding fathers, as I told you, some of them more, you know, Protestant um, active, you know, participants of of their communities, some of them less like Jefferson, some of them, many of them Masons. Mm -hmm. Jefferson probably was not one of them, was not Mason, but was based. So they believe in the notion of God. Nothing to do with what today we can call atheism or, you know, Gnosticism. It doesn't work at that time in that mentality. So at, at that time, they you can see by just looking carefully at what is the legacy of, of, of the founding fathers that there's a religious language as part of the American political vocabulary. You can find it everywhere. In God we trust, God bless America. You have all of this language that penetrates and it's a religious Protestant background, I insist, okay? Doesn't mean that later on can be transform and expand it. But initially it was a Protestant. Catholics, they were completely aside. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They were not part of this right. approach. So from there, you you have it. Then you have a religious language. Then you have a sacred text. Which one it is? The Constitution. And that creates the faith in the Constitution. The Constitution is like the Holy Book with another two more. One is the Declaration of Independence and the other is the Bill of Rights. These three are the sacred books of the American or Americanism or the America identity as civic religion. So from there, you have um, values you mentioned before. Yes, Christian, Protestant values. Clearly, they are there. The, for that, you can just need to read Max Weber and Protestantism and capitalism. The whole thing is just right there. Okay. And he was a sociologist, as you know. So after that, you have symbols. Of course, you have flat. You have the eagle. By the way, eagle was the Roman Empire symbol. Look at the, you know, coincidence. Mm-hmm. Then you have uh, the, the minting, the coinage. In mm-hmm. God we trust. Not in greed we trust, some people used to say. No, it's in God we trust <laughs> and it's right there. So it's a taste uh, from a Christian background, clearly. So after that, you have hymns, the national anthem, America's song, Amazing Grace, which was not, um, as you know, it was not initially composed um, by an American, but was by a British, right. uh, you know, who, who has, I think, if I remember well, was a captain in the in the boats of slaves, uh, carrying the slaves until he got repentance, and, and that was the, the Amazing Grace song came from. But anyway, you have those that symbolize and recreate emotions. When you go to ancient religions, all of them, they have these liturgical hymns, okay, to glorification Mm -hmm. for uh, any type of expressing emotion to the songs, through songs, through the singing. Well, you have then, of course, holidays, as you mentioned, civil festivities. We have all of them, from the Memorial Day to the President Day and all, all in between. 
rituals you have thanksgiving you have the presidential breakfast or uh, pre- breakfast prayer i think they call it or before it was called a national prayer breakfast since the time of eisenhower uh, you have all these uh, inaugurations in which you know um, a religious uh, minister or chaplain give uh, something then you have the connection all the time you see between secular institutions and Christian legacy. Okay? okay. So from there, you have also, that's something that I, I found very interesting when I studied the, the connection or the parallelism with, uh, with um, the ancient Rome, the imperial Rome, which is the temples, the notion of the temple. Here in Washington, D.C., where I am, we have three temples. We have the Congress, the Temple of Law, we have the Supreme Court, the Temple of Justice, and we have the Temple of Knowledge, clearly, the Library of Congress. In Rome, they have the same thing. And also they have different, uh, you know, temples for small, um, you know, gods, for minor gods, Paulus. Wait, wait, and, wait, uh, I, I'm sorry. In Rome, they had three temples like that. There was a Temple of Knowledge and a Temple, just yes. like we... That's amazing. But, uh, more or less, the idea. I'm not saying that it's exactly the same, but uh, probably Jefferson. That's my my impression. Jefferson right. was inspired by that. Uh-huh. It's a hill. We call it the hill. Roman has seven hills. You know, and, and it I was see. dedicated to that. They have libraries. They have so the Senate. You see, so they try to somehow take the essence of this notion of civic identity. Okay. Okay. In a sacred way. In a holy way in a civic religion way. Right. Okay? So from there, you have, as I told you, that, that what that creates, creates the sanctity of the American institutions. Okay? The holiness of the American institutions. Then from, from there, of course, well, you know, in, in Rome, let me remember, in Rome you have small gods, like here, for example, you have to the heroes, to the semi-god, to the emperors, and you have temples for each of them. You mm-hmm. have here the same thing. Lincoln, or Jefferson. You have the Washington Monument. Statues. Rome, you have the Arapaches. Arapaches was the most, uh, you know, civil um, monument for civil worship, uh-huh. which was the altar of the peace. And for Rome, the most important was the peace of gods. That's why the figure that sometimes I think we talk about that the, the role of the Roman Pontifex. Later on, the Pope took that role and that name. But initially, was in the Republican era, was the role developed by um, a senator and later on by any citizen when, you know, the Lex Olgunia changed this division between between, between aristocracy and, and uh, normal citizens or regular citizens. So as I was telling you, to me, uh, in America, all of that under the influence of the neoclassical trending and, and fashion and in the Enlightenment, as I said, Possible was, in, in my view, possible possibly was uh, Jefferson who, who lead that idea of civic religion. They didn't call it like that, but embody what I'm telling you. So, um, what is the role of the president in this religion? Mm-hmm. Well, you have a holy priest, or it's, you know, um, um, you have the pope, or you have a you know high priest, or you have some. The president represent or embody somehow the Moses role. In leadership. Mm-hmm. That's why probably when you uh, study comparative uh, constitutional laws from other countries, you realize that this constitutional system is extremely presidentialist. Even in those days, they were arguing if, you know, the president can pardon 
himself. Right. This came to my mind. Came to my mind when you know the civil war in England because the king was absolutely absolutist, and uh, Charles the first and, and you know Cromwell and the parliamentarians went against the royalists. They lost the war. The the royalists they got the king. They behaved him by, by treason. He couldn't pardon himself. He couldn't even think about it. And when I was listening with you know scholars, friends of, of mine, and well-known constitutionalists, they were saying, "Well, that has to be challenged in the court." In the case that president, you know, supposed to, to, or any other president supposed to pardon himself in advance. I said, well, from my, uh, you know, European legal mind, I, I cannot put it in my brain. <laughs> they have to challenge the court. The court has to say if he can do it or he cannot do it. So what I'm trying to say is in this case, the president with all of his power that is holding in his high office, it represents somehow the high priest. Mm -hmm. As I told you, from some type of mosaicat idea, you know, the one which is capable to lead it. Remember that America, many times, you, you hear constantly that in Europe, sometimes it shocks us when they said, we are, the, our president leads the world, the free world. And we said, well, wait a minute, the American people, but uh, it's too much. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's leading the world. And no other country does that, that they're president leads the free world. Yes, it's I mean, an American I, thing. I say, you know, only America does that. Okay. That, you know, the president, uh, and also, it's, uh, you know, God bless you, God bless the president. These notions that all the time, to me, they connect somehow with the imperial Rome, which I was trying to tell you. Okay, but just, just let, let's finish this. Okay, this please, I, I yes. was saying that, see, they have this, this uh, religious leader. Then you, leader of the free world, is, is very common, you know, when you hear politics in, in Washington. Uh -huh. Then you have martyrs. Look at that. That comes from the Christianity background. You have martyrs. You have two martyrs here, which are the main martyrs. Mm -hmm. Which one are? You know which one? Which one? American, American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln. Okay. That's for sure. American Civil Equality and Liberties, Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. You worshiping them, not in a religious faith based as traditional religions does, but in the American religion, faith, civil faith does. Okay. Different question is what is the purpose? Clearly, the purpose is to you know facilitate and promote unity, a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, Americanism, let's call it. Okay, so even Abraham Lincoln, that's why I think that the early scholar who start to develop this notion of American civil religion, they, they took initially the, the famous words of Abraham Lincoln that in, uh, I think it was 1838, in the address of perpetuation of our political institution, he particularly said political religion of the nation. That's when the idea comes from. I, my guess is that, um, you know, Abraham Lincoln put the cornerstone of this whole idea. His speech at Lyceum. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Okay. So different is, okay, another story, let's say, is origins of that. How, how can we link this to what? I mean, why this emerged? Well, because we didn't have look at the back. We always have for centuries and centuries in Europe, and this country comes from the European um, background and roots. And mostly the early, you know, um, settlers they were they were Europeans. So the, the notion of official religion. Mm -hmm. So that has to be substituted because, as I told you, if uh, 
you know, um, Roger Williams introduced the idea of religious freedom, and it was clear that in the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights, you have free exercise of religion and non-establishment of religion, the so-called free free clause, I mean, the free um, free exercise clause and the establishment clause, which indeed is a non-establishment clause, non-confessional church, non-official church, then you have to fill up this emotional space, this patriotic space, this identity space with something. And you have to fill it with Americanism or civic religion. That's my approach. Then why is that? Well, as I told you, I have the feeling, I cannot prove it, I didn't research enough yet, but my feeling is that Jefferson, who was great scholar, he really, he always said that he read all the 6,000 some books that he has in his library before he gave them to the, to the, to the Congress when, you know, the burning that took place by the English, the, the English attack and, and destruction of the library and so on. But, but um, you know, Jefferson knew that he had the Quran, he had the Bibles. He, you know, he was very much interested in deism, in the notion of, of Christianity, in the notion of religions, in the notion of Islam. He was anxious to anxious, anxious to learn. So what that means to me means that he was very much aware that mm-hmm. this society cannot keep together without an identity. What is the identity? Right. Right. Okay. It's not Protestantism. Those are the roots. That's fine. And we can move on. And we did it as a country from, from uh, you know, the attachment to just Protestant roots. And that was the opening space for more communities, more religions, more in the 19th century. And those awakenings that, you know, they are so important in the development of abolition of slavery and all of that. So the spiritual part of this country is enormous and it's extremely valuable. But besides that, when mm-hmm. Jefferson was designing what Americans has to be together for, we are not a colony anymore. We don't have the king anymore. We don't have the church, national church of, of England. Mm-hmm. They have even, they, they changed it to Episcopalian. They don't have the Anglican church here in a formal way any longer because that means submission, submission to the queen or right. the king at that time. So he has to develop something. And I'm sure that that was the legacy that was passing through him with all of these, you know, approaches of, and this was the, the, of course, the founding fathers said this idea, the traditions, they were built up little by little until the point that we have a real, you know, religion that makes us more perfect union, let's say. It facilitates that perfect uh, union. Or, or I always call it a, a, a working in process. More than a perfect union is an union in process, as mm-hmm. you know. You know, right. like I say, it's, it's a working process. So anyway, what are the origins? I'm sure that that um, you know, and it's just intuitively. But I think that Jefferson thought about Rome a lot. He knew a lot about the Roman Empire. He has plenty of books. Um, he read all the classics, so he knew that the Roman Empire was glued to something, was attached to something, what was the identity, at least the initial identity? Well, probably that what we call call today civic religion, Mm -hmm. the civic religion of Rome, which of course they didn't give that name, but the content, it fits, you know, so it doesn't matter the name to this point, as much as we are talking about the same essence. So what happened at that time is that you see that then, you know, then we have to go back, back, back in history to the development of ancient history Uh and see um, what happened 
from the transition to republic to autocracy, what we call an empire. Of course, Rome was empire before, I mean, being republic, before being a dominate or an autocracy. Um, after they lost uh, the, the, Car the Cartesians, they lost the Puni Wars, that was it. I mean, uh, you know, in this case, Roma is great. Let's go and take the whole Mediterranean thing. And they did it. So in that case, they need something to do. They have many peoples conquered. Not all of them. There are a few amount of them, only citizens. How can we get them together? What is the sense of unity we have to give it to them? So that took place in my, in my knowledge at the time that the collapse of the Republic. Why? Because then the values of the Republic, they do not exist any longer. That was at the time of, of Julius Caesar. That was most likely by the big architect of the civic Roman religion, which was Octavian Augustus, which defend him, present himself as the divus filii, the divine son of Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. He was not his son. He was an adopted. He was a great uh, niece, uh, a great uh, nephew of him, as a matter of fact. So he tried to, to collect all of this legacy, centralize the power in, in himself, and create something that can bring all the Romans together. And that's when he created two cults, the Dea Roma and the worship to the emperor, the mm -hmm. imperial worship. They have two, let's say, two sides of the same coin. So from that time, you see the, the development of, of the Roman civic religion took place. What were the consequences of that? Um, well, the main idea, of course, for, for uh, Octavius was create a strong empire, united under him, the, the great autocrat. He presented himself as, as the prince. Kings, that was not a nice name in, the, you know, in that era after the Republic. So you never find the kings until the barbarians came into action. Mm -hmm. There were no kings. But they, what they, they got? Well, they got, uh, you know, the public religions uh, in the sense of worshipping. What they were worshipping? They were worshipping the empire, the loyalty to the empire. They have their own faith, a faith in the empire. They are Roma, the goddess Rome. Who was the high priest of the goddess Rome? The emperor. Who was him? Pontifex, the maximum pontifex, that was um, um, a position in the Republican Party, which was completely outside of the military power, mm -hmm. mostly for uh, jurisprudence, uh, you know, for jurisprudence, calendars, festivities, things uh, dealing with what they call it divine law. Okay. But then he put it for, I mean, the first who did it was, was um, Caesar and then, um, you know, Augustus. So from that time, you can see that he presents himself as the savior of Rome. Okay. Like a messianic kind of savior. Oh, a kind of messianic, yes. Uh, well, I think that is not the opposite. The mess messianism came after this example of Octavius, of Augustus. Uh huh. Okay. This notion of, of, of savior penetrating to Christianity, not the other way around. Okay. Okay, probably. So then what you have there? You have the cult of personality, you have the cult of the empire. You have the emperor caught as a guardian of the goddess Rome. And you have temples everywhere for this purpose. That was the problem with the, with the Jews, and that was the problem with the Christians, because they didn't worship any other. Until Galerius' time, which was the latest persecutions in the, at the end of the 200th 
3rd century, 295, 297 year of the Roman era, mm-hmm. in which they said, okay, let's make an agreement. Let's make an accommodation. You offer, you know, you make offerings to, not to the gods, to your god, to pray and to take care of your emperor. Look how the interpretation was able to surpass the persecutions mm-hmm. and the martyrdom, you see? But that took place 300 years after, right. at the end of the 3rd century. Right. All right. So, uh, you see, and what I'm trying to tell you is that any time that you have a change of paradigm from a monarchical absolutist system to a constitutional republic system, you have to adjust it to, you know, get the people of that community together to create the same, you know, brotherhood. How can you do that? Romans did it in the transition from republic to empire. Then another change took place from empire to Christianity. I mean, from pagan um, empire, mm-hmm. worshipping the, the goddess Rome and the emperor, to the Christianity. And that was complicated. Let me tell you, that took from Constantine to Theodosius, in which they had to struggle. And you can see that in the minting, the coins. Never mention Jesus. Never mention anything. Mm. No, the glory of the empire the glory and the victory of the soul of our legions. That was the type of, the type of minting in the so-called first earlier Christian emperors. That means something. Right. Means that they were adjusting. Uh, Constantine particularly never gave up his position as supreme or high priest of Rome. He never gave up the, the purple, you know, that the, the, the clamide, the purple, which was the symbol of, of high priest at civil level, let's say, at imperial level. So they, they have a tremendous complicated moment. And it's, that is when, you know, the papacy ap- appears. And that is when the papacy starts to struggle for power, for independence and for power. And then you have every type of thing, but that will take us too much to talk about. Right. It. From the, you know, forgery documents, trying to present that God gave them straight the, the political authority, uh, like in the donation of Constantine, which was a forgery presented as uh, it was a, a Constantinian document when it was, uh, you know, from the 7th century or maybe yeah, early 8th century. And then the problem is the, the paradigm changes. Why? Because now the emperor is not anymore the guardian of Christianity as official religion of the empire. That is the unity. The Christianity gives the unity. Then you have a mess. You have, in one side, the bishop of Rome trying to, you know, request independence from right. the political power, but at the same time, supreme authority regarding to the rest of the churches. Here you have the patriarch of Constantinople said, saying, no way, Jose, you cannot be, you know, above us. That was the reason why they split in uh, in, in 1053, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in, at the beginning of the 11th century. So, you know, and that is why, the, you know, the connection of religion all the time and what role is playing as instrument of power goes on and on, sometimes at the service of politics, sometimes at the service of religion itself. Catholic Church is a good example with the papacy, mostly the papacy in the 14th century, which uh, there was a famous pope, Boniface VIII, that in the beginning of the 14th century, he said, nobody can get salvation, except is fully submitted, if he, he or she is fully submitted to me. Oh, nice. Oh, 
that's that's how it works. So of course that was the, the pre the pre Lutheran and the pre Reformist era. They start to make critics about that. They said that that cannot be. They come back to the Bible. They start to translate it, as you know, in uh, in vernacular in local languages. That was how it spread through the Gutenberg, you know, new invention of of printing. So that was another change of paradigm. What happened with this change of paradigm? Well, the kings, they said, let's do something. Let's pacify our territory. Let's control our religion. We are the head of the religion. Here you have the English king. You have the Danish king. You have the Scandinavian, Norwegian, and Sweden kings. All of them doing exactly the same, being the head of the official church. Germany was more complex. That's why Germany never got unified because Catholics and Protestants, they were struggling and killing each other for, for 200 years. What happened at the end? Well, the only agreement that was possible was saying, cuius preju ejus religio, to each king their own religion, is entitled to force his, you know, subjects to his religion. If you are disagree, go and move to the Catholic, to another Catholic domain with another Catholic ruler, if you are Catholic, if but, you are Protestant, go and join them. That was the massive migration in the 14th, 15th century. I mean, I'm sorry, 16th century. Right. Do you think that was part of a a national campaign or a religious campaign? In other words, were they saying, well, this is our religion. If you don't like it, go. Or were they saying in, in order to... For political concerns. Political concerns. Okay. You think For it was political, political concerns. concerns. Yes. Okay. That's why I said it's the instrument. Religion is an instrument for power. When you, don't, when you don't have religion, you have to substitute religion by a civic religion. Otherwise, how can you keep the identity of that people together? If you don't have in this country your flag, your constitution, your, you know, all of these um, elements that I told you that provide us with a substance, emotional background of identity. And, and, and I think that that's the background because they said, well, we don't want a king. We don't have an, an official church that is clear in the Bill of Rights. So what can we do? Well, we invented something, Americanism as identity. So Americanism, though, you, it seems like a another step in this evolution because when, yes. the, in, in, when Rome or the nations in, back in those days took advantage of religion as a tool for their own nationalism, there actually was a religion and there was a belief in, in whatever gods or deity they believed in. And they yes. channeled that in favor of their own nationalism, their own political interests. But this American civil religion doesn't officially recognize any particular God or, or even God at all. Theoretically, you can be an atheist and believe in the American yeah, religion. You said in God we trust. God bless America. That's true. You See, you know? right. So that's that's what's weird about it. Because yes. you know, can I tell you a story? I, I I hang the American flag out in front of my house, and every year on the Fourth of July, right? And one year, the flag that I bought became too tattered and, and used, and I had to replace it. So I went to the local variety store. I got a new American flag. And I took the old one, and please don't tell anybody. I, I, I really didn't mean any disrespect. I threw it out. Yeah, well, and I, you didn't burn it. 
I, I, no, no, I, I, no, I didn't. I meant no disrespect. On, on the contrary, it was like yeah, used up. It was, it was weather beaten, and and somebody saw it in my garbage can. A friend of mine, a neighbor, and he comes running in and he says, "Rabbi, Rabbi, you can't do that." I said, "What do I do?" He says, "What do you want me?" He says, "You can't throw the flag out." I said, "What do you want me to do with it?" But, but even let's say somebody who doesn't believe in God, we trust. He doesn't believe in God at all. They're expected to respect this this sanctity was like like blasphemy let's say what right saying. exactly and i really didn't mean any disrespect it's only it's only cloth i understand what it symbolizes but this thing was all ruined like what should yeah. i do with it put it in a coffin uh, bury it I, I, there's there's this there's this uh, pseudo religious attitude that that's it's synthesized you see if if somebody believes in in god and he believes that there's there's a revelation of a law, or he believes in I don't know what Zeus or Odin or one of these things, right? So so he believes that there's a source for whatever mythology he he propagates. But over here, it's like religious ritual and religious attitude without any official yes. mythological belief. Yeah, became independent itself. Independent. Say, the ritual, the act, the sanctity became independent of any source. Yeah. Of course, the legacy, the language, the symbolism is religious. It's Christianity, it's Protestantism. But then God, independence by itself, got its own identity. And that's also is part of the new, you know, nationalist ideology that came out in the 19th century. Right. Or most likely after, you know, nationalism mostly emerged after the Westphalia Treaty in 1648. And at that time is when you have to give something when religion is not any any longer powerful. Still, you have the confessional states, still you have this powerful approach, but there was not any longer, you know, so strong emotions like in medieval times, like, you know, the, the Holy Roman Empire ideology. So is when you, looking at America, start to imitate and to cre you create in Europe, for example, this type of identity, then the flag, the, uh, you know, civic festivities. You, you Somehow you imitate this Americanism into their own France, Italy, mostly Germany arrived late because, as I told you, uh, Italy and, and, and Germany, they were divided for so different reasons. But uh, in, in Italy was not the religion, was that the papacy half, half of the country, most of, more or less, and I mean, half of the peninsula as papal states. And Germany was because uh, the, the rulers, they were divided between Protestant rulers and Catholic rulers. And that also explained why the first empire of Germans and why the second empire and the third mm -hmm. empire, you see? You know, you know this, this reminds me, this transformation, a transition from religion to nationalism. It, it reminds me of, of what happened to Judaism and what the Zionists did to it. Uh, originally, originally, in its most basic, pure, authentic form, Judaism is very non-political. Judaism is a, is a relationship between the human beings and God. And originally, there's a story in the Bible where the Jews came to the prophet Samuel and told him they want a king like everybody else has. Mm -hmm. And Samuel was angry at them. He said, God is your king. Why do you want a human king? But they wanted a human king, and that was considered... Uh, 
that was considered a a going down in the, in their religious level. But they had a king. But even when they had kings, the prophets would rebuke kings and the prophets who would have a direct connection to God. It was always God that was in control of the king. I uh, I was once speaking in um, Central Connecticut State University. Uh, our friend Norton invited yep. me there. And after I, I spoke, I was speaking about Judaism and Zionism, and there was a man in the audience, who a guest, who asked a question. I found out later he was a, a Christian pastor. And he he asked me about King David being a military man. And I said, no, that's that's not the Jewish version of King David. That's the more modern. And I, I gave him an example in, in the Psalms that King David wrote, and he's familiar with it. It's the Old Testament. This is a king, an actual king, King David, who had an actual army, who could actually kill people if he wanted. He was a king. You know the powers the kings had in those days, right? Nowhere in the Psalms does King David bring about his strength or the strength of his army, or even praise it. He's always praying to God, God help me, God I'm in your hands, God do this for me, God do that for me. And, and he says in, in the Psalms, there's one thing I want in my life. Now what would a king in ancient times want? A great kingdom, a powerful kingdom, that's what these guys aspired to. He said, I only want one thing, one thing I ask of you God, that all my life I should sit in your sanctuary and study your holy words. That was King David. And always, it, it was the, the important people, the people that deserved to be followed, were the righteous ones, and the ones connected to God, and the ones that followed the law. But then, then came nationalism. And then came nationalism. And the historian Gretz, who Shlomo Avineri, in his book, The Making of Modern Zionism, lists him as one of the founding fathers of Zionism, even though he wasn't officially a Zionist. But he correctly points out that Gretz did more than anybody else to give people the idea that the Jewish people are a nationality more than just a religion. He rewrote all of Jewish history, and from him the idea comes that's world famous. You, you've heard it, that the rabbis 2,000 years ago, after the destruction of the commonwealth, they rewrote Judaism. Uh, as a religion rather than a, a political uh, ethno-religion. And he says, Avineri says, that there's, there's really no basis for it. It's more of a political manifesto rather than actual history. And, and the truth is, you want to you hear something weird, uh, Professor Moran? You know how in Jewish history, in ancient times, and even today, there's disagreements about so many things. There was the, the Sadducees who disagreed with the entire idea of an oral law. And there was the early Christians were, were originally Jews. Jesus was an Orthodox Jew. And there were all sorts of different sects, especially, especially at the end of the second uh, sanctuary period. And yet, these people, Gretz and his, his people claim that after the sanctuary was destroyed, there were some rabbis that rewrote the entire foundation of Judaism. And guess what? There is no record of any groups in history that objected to that. There were Jewish groups that objected to everything, but now suddenly, suddenly, some rabbis rewrote the, the fundamental, the whole idea of Jewish identity. Nobody, there was no, there's no group it's not as, as if we know there were certain groups that wanted to do this and others disagreed. There was no record of any such 
transition at all. It's just assumed. And there are no, there are no opposing groups to this alleged transition. And then, and then th that opened the door for Zionism. Because then Zionism came, and, and the stated goal of Zionism was to transform the Jewish people from a religion into a nationality. And you talk about loyalty. There was a Zionist, Peretz Smolenskin, his name was. He said, once we determine the basis of Jewish identity as nationality rather than religion, so the rabbis will not be able to exclude us, even if we're not religious. You know what bothers me about this whole civic religion, nationalism thing? There's something really bothers me about it. It's supremacist. It is. At some point, uh, yes. You know, I'll, I'll tell you... We and the other. It's yeah, I'll, I'll tell... Right. I'll, I'll tell you why, why, why I'm saying that. Even if it doesn't go crazy like, you know, it did on January 6th, or, or I'm not even talking about uh, oppression, you know. I understand the point of this, of this whole idea. The whole, whole idea is to get people together to generate patriotism. I mean, I live here in New York, and California is six hours by plane. Montreal is like six hours by car, a little more. Yeah. I could drive to Montreal before it gets dark. Yet, if California or Alaska or Hawaii is attacked, I'm expected, and not me personally, but we're expected, the people in New York, to risk our lives to protect the people in California or Alaska and Hawaii, but not the people in Montreal, yes. not the people who are closer to me. There's some sort of corporation that it's this... It's a nation state ideology. It's a, na it's right. a nation state ideology. It's a nation... I, now, there was this philosopher, Herder, who believed that there was something natural in uh, about nations, that the nat natural, most natural historic division of the human race is into nations. There's something actually organic about it. Yeah, well, no, they are communities. I, I don't think that the nation state it came out from the debacle that was, uh, you know, after the, the so many wars of religion in Europe. I, and I, they came out with the solution that I told you I, in the uh, Treaty of Westphalia. Uh, I, I agree with you. The problem is, how do they, they had a, they had a problem. There are two problems. Problem number one, how do you get people to actually go to the army, give your life for a group, an artificially, synthetically created team, a corporation, an artificial... I have nothing to do with some guy in California. I never met the guy, right? But I'm expected to go to war for him. Why? Because the United States owns California like it owns New York. And if the United yeah. States would sell California to Mexico, then tomorrow we wouldn't, Mexico and California would be the same country. And it's like you get traded to a different baseball team and suddenly the fans are now uh, a fan but of you. Yeah, they were throwing the rocks at you Spain, yesterday when you were on the Red Sox. Mexico and then part of the United States. Right. So, so that's, the, the game of, that's the game of politics and so, borders. And that's a political game. And, and the problem is, is, is the dynamic game. When you think that the United States is going to be static and forever, that is wrong. Right. It's like being on a baseball team. You, you know what I mean? The fans... You, we have to spend, I mean, to, to, to more or less expect changes. Uh, dy dynamic uh, takes you there. You know, dy dynamic interactions take you there. What right. is going to be this country in 200 years from now? I don't know. But for sure, this Americanism as ideology, it will decline. Because ideologies, they grew up, they're like the humans, you know. They are born, they grew up, they develop, and they decay.
I know, but you know what? You know what? I think that there is a na- a natural. I mean, as as a, a Jew, I I follow the uh, doctrine that people have a nat- natural inclination or instinct to find God, and when you when you remove religion from them. It doesn't have to be any particular religion, just like a person has an instinct for safety. Sometimes that instinct leads him to do just the opposite of what's safe. person wakes up in the middle of a fire, he's supposed to stop, drop, and roll. His instinct tells him just run out the door. It's the worst possible thing, even though the uh, instinct, uh, the survival instinct is, is legitimate. So there's an instinct for God, and, and that comes from the soul. The soul and the body, our religion tells us, is like a marriage of a princess to a caveman. They want two different things, the soul and the body, and there's always this pull. And the soul is always yearning for God, and when you remove religion, so then, like you said, when religion was, or religious authority really, what declined, people were looking for substitutes. Yes. You know, in, in, in Russia, uh, the Russian intelligentsia from uh, Pushkin to Tolstoy, all of these, in Russian literature, the main topic was the meaning of life. Mm-hmm. You know, people need something. So either it's nationalism to fulfill. Higher than you. Higher than, higher you. than you. Yes. I yes. Need something higher than you. Yes. And you need a community to have a sense of belonging. You have these three basic things. Then, you know, circumstances, political events, religious crisis takes you. Right. You so are looking for these three things. When you have a purpose, when you have a higher than yourself, you know, purpose. And when you have this community that gets together for this higher purpose, that's how you can have this input. You right. know what I mean? Right. That so, can take you politically or can take you religiously. So when even you if... Move, you have to substitute. That's right. what Augustus did. Right. That so, is what the Pope did. That is what the prince did. You know what so, I mean? So, so, that is what probably the founding fathers of this country did. Right. So even if America, Americanism declines, there will be something that will take its place. Yes. Something beyond just... pragmatic pragmatic life because otherwise i mean how are you going to get people to like defend your country how are you going to get and also how are you going to fulfill you need to feel that you are immortal you need to believe in something to just go through the path of death with some type of optimism and expectations well (laughs) i don't end here it's a very depressing thing okay i end with a question i have a question i i don't know if really there is an answer it it's true of of religions and of all, all sorts of ideologies there are two types of exclusivity to me and and in my religion judaism exclusivity depends on your choice your choices your values you could be a born a jew but if you don't follow the right choices you don't choose the right choices you don't believe in the right things and follow the right values you're the lowest on the totem pole being a jew is a is a job description like a fireman, let's say. It means we have obligations. And being the chosen people means chosen to fulfill these obligations. That's what it means. And actually, in Judaism, whoever has more obligations is considered on a higher level. And if you... That's a theological... Yes. And if you don't fulfill fulfill these obligations, 
then even though you, you could be a fireman officially, but if you never come to work and never put on your uniform, you're worse than the average citizen. And I'm telling you as a rabbi that uh, somebody not from our religion, an average law-abiding Muslim, for example, uh, doesn't worship idols, doesn't kill, follows any system of, of civic law, is higher, is closer to God than a guy like David Ben-Gurion in Judaism. It depends on your choices. Now, people can disagree on what the right choices are, but on your free will. Then there's another idea that my greatness doesn't depend on my free will. My exclusivity is not my free will. It's something based on my race or my skin color or my gender or my nationality. Okay. I'm part of the Aryan race or, or something like that. And that's always bad because oh. good and bad always depends on choices. Now, I see no, mostly because you, you think that you are superior. Exactly, others. exactly. And, and once you once you uh, once you're making people different, then inevitably it's going to come to a point where difference means unequal. Yes. You know, so if if Herder is right and he's not, of course, that nationalities are natural divisions of the human race. It will come to a time where just like there are species of animals that are more important than others. We would step on a bug, but we wouldn't kill a, a dog, right? Yeah, and if you don't have bees, the whole world is in chaos. You know, exactly, in chaos. exactly, so, exactly. Yeah. So I grew up here in the United States of America, and I used to pledge of allegiance to the flag in school like everybody else. And yes, it mentions God. The Israeli national anthem doesn't mention God. The American pledge of allegiance does, okay? Yes. Yes, again. it's a, exactly, exactly. And it's a different type of, it's a civic atheistic religion, Zionism. Yes. Okay. And what I was taught, what I understand, that what makes America great, what makes America exclusive is its policies, its choices, its values, not the American nationality. There's no such thing as an American nationality. We're all immigrants or whole country started 1776, right? We're, we're all immigrants and it, maximum we're immigrants from England, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, but we came from, from Britain or most of us came from other places. My family's from Poland, but there's no such thing as an American nationality. It's our choices, our free will, the proper exercise of our free will that makes America great rather than something intrinsic or organic to being American. That's different. And still than, is indoctrination and it still is propaganda. You know what? It, uh, you, you know what? Even it, if you say like Biden, which I, I love the, when they ask him, what is the most important thing? He was mentioning, I think, yesterday in the inauguration. Okay. He said that America, somebody, some some of these, you know, top uh, presidents or top, uh, you know, authorities right. in a foreign country. And he said, America is different because it has one single thing, which is possibilities. It's the land of possibilities. Right. So that's the national myth of America. It's the land of opportunity. Uh -huh. But at least the idea is correct that if it would be the land of opportunity, that would be a, a benefit, a plus, right? If it would be. Uh -huh. The question is, is it true? If possibilities. That's an unnecessary opportunity. Uh, possibilities oh, and opportunities are not. Equivalent. You're right. I think. I, <laughs> I, I. I think that really the right answer in theory would be the land of opportunity. You know, but but it, at least in theory, that is a. It's it's an answer that has the right values, even if it's not true, even if they don't walk the walk. 
Greatness is only how you exercise your free will, as opposed to I'm a better race or I'm a better color, or, I'm a better something else. It's not even a question of right or wrong. You're, you're, the whole idea of what good and bad is is skewed. Here, with, you know, for me, but, the main idea is just how you focus your attention. What do you mean? Where you put your attention. And I think that this country, what to me shows, is a constant expansion in ideas, in openings, was able to become, I, I remember sometimes in Spain, my students used to tell me, but, you know, America never was a democratic country initially, you know, it was not. Right. But they have the idea, they focus in this idea and came out maybe 150, 180 after the Jim Crow laws that ends, you know, at the time of, of Martin Luther King and the movement of, of equal, you know, rights. So that took a lot of time, but they stick to it. They, this idea was expanded, was developed. That's right. why I, I said always that America is a work in, pro, in progress. A work you in know, progress. It's and not a never an end. In the moment that this end is over. And, and you're right. And I, and I agree with you. And you're really agreeing with me that it has to do with doing the right thing, having the right ideas, as opposed to being the right type of person or born in a superior way or something like that. Not and, only do the right things. Uh, in mm -hmm. my view, and looking at the American history, knowing your mistakes and try to don't Good. do it again. Th that's that's not necessarily takes you to the right choice. Sometimes okay. you make the wrong choice and then you acknowledge that you did the wrong. Fair enough. Acknowledging Fair enough. Fair enough. Acknowledging what you did mm -hmm. wrong is also part of the process of making the right choices. Today, tomorrow, we're human beings. Right. We make mistakes. Got it. Um, but once we invoke this nationalism, this this civic religion, what what happens is that you become that that you are great because you're an American, as opposed to the next guy that's an Englishman yeah, or the next. <laughs> that's exactly it becomes chauvinism. Yeah. Well, uh, that it bothers me. How to balance? Right. How to balance your identity in this country with your identity in your religion? When your where, where your identity as a daughter, as a mother, or as a father, or you know, that's how how things has to wait. How they have to play in an harmonious way. That's to me the key. Yeah. Because, you know, the identity, the civil identity is not bad itself. It's, I'm not in a dualistic, many, you know, many can type of approach. Things are good and they are bad. Not necessarily depend. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. You know what I mean? So depend. In, to me, civic identity is not bad in itself. It's possibilities. How you can get together. How can you build great things all together? What is the dark side of it? Of course, chauvinism, racism, supremacism. But then if you are aware and you make one mistake once, you try to not make it twice. Right. That It all boils down to uh, if the civic identity is based on, you know, we got to do good things. And if we do bad things, we got to correct ourselves. Then that's good. And that's good. Common project of purpose, higher purpose than yourself, like religion. That gets people together to do great things that otherwise couldn't be made, and of course you can make great mistakes in the process. I know. I'm just talking okay. about you want to get together with the guy, this guy, as opposed to the guy in Mexico. You know, like what this sense of unity, how we divide it, and who we get together for, and who we risk yeah, our life for. The problem to me is that you have to find in you a balance between community 
and yourself. I know. I, community, you know, we and them. That's I know. The I, I agree. And, and I don't. And you, how much you want to bring the wall Hi. Yes, the world, the world. The world at all. Exactly, but the world means everybody, not just the people who your government decided no, is no, no, your no, country. No, 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 no. That is human race, if you want right. to call it race. Humanity. Exactly. Humanity. I know, I, I agree with that. I agree with that, 100%. Yeah, you can search for truth. You can ask yourself in a humble way, but that takes us to the world of, you know, of the soul. Yes. And that's a different realm in which we It's were, a different discussion. We yes, it's the different. History of this country and, and the history of the Roman Empire. All right, <laughs> a, a professor, professor. From the original topic. Yeah, Professor Moran, I want to thank you so much <laughs> for giving us your time and your expertise and your scholarship. It's uh it was it was great, you know, for the listener to hear to hear this kind of stuff from such a authoritative source. It's a pleasure and um, I really appreciate it, you know, to just be able to communicate, to talk with you. We are friends. So that, that was a great occasion to just exchange ideas and, and talk about things that probably, you know, maybe the audience, your audience could uh, just be interested. And uh, not only my audience, not only my audience, I learned a lot from this in the last hour. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Okay. Have a good afternoon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Committing High Reason, the podcast that brings you the thoughts that count. For more material from Rabbi Shapiro and for this episode's show notes and links, head on over to www.committinghighreason.com. 